0: If you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 123. We're looking at the Psalms of Ascent. That's the songs where you're going up to the temple. Three times a year, the children of Israel were instructed to come to the temple. There was only one temple. It was in Jerusalem. The temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. It was destroyed earlier at a, a, a couple of different times. And as they rebuilt it, as Jesus was there at the, at the temple, Uh, so much of what God was doing was centered around the temple. Only at the temple could you bring that lamb for the sacrifice. Only at the temple could you come and, and truly bring your sacrifice, showing how much God means to you. And these 15 psalms of ascent, Psalm 120 through 134, as you look at these psalms, these were the songs they were singing as they were coming into the presence of God. In their mind, that's where God dwelt. The tabernacle is where the Shekinah glory, the glory that we could not even look at, that's where it was centered, in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. It says when, when God came and they dedicated the temple, they couldn't even go in for all of the, the, the glory that was there, this Shekinah glory that's cloud. And as we look at this, as we think about coming to the presence of the Lord, we have a different scenario, a different situation. We don't have to go to Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit resides in us. As we come together, where two or three are gathered together, there am I in the midst of them, the Lord says. That's, that's an incredible concept, that when we gather together, God's glory is in us. Look at the person next to you. Do you see any God's glory there? Okay, maybe we need to work on that a little bit. But we miss out on so much that we were made for more. And today we're looking specifically at Psalm 123. It's a very short psalm. It's a psalm that really just gives us a snapshot. I'm convinced we fundamentally misunderstand what God wants to communicate to us through this book, through His Word. So many people believe this Bible is simply a rule book and takes all the fun out of life. Most people don't want to read a rule book right? Is it important to read the rule book? Sometimes it is. November 10th, 2011, the Raiders were playing the uh, Chargers. Any Charger fans here? Yeah, okay. The Raider fans? Oh, we'll pray for you. (laughs) On fourth and one, midway through the first quarter, Hugh Jackson went to his go-to trick play, Shane Leckler. Who's Shane Leckler? He's a punter. He's a kicker. He threw the ball. And as Leckler did when he hooked up with Kevin Boss for a, t- a touchdown, he threw a dart. It was a perfect pass. As the ball arced toward the receiver, Jay- <laughs> Jacoby Ford, mere inches from the goal line, defender Quentin Jammer shoved forward to the ground. Now get this, the kicker threw a pass, perfect pass, just as the receiver's about to touch it, he slammed to the ground before he touches the ball. What's that called, those of you that love football? Pass interference. Wrong. Note 5 in the pass interference rulebook of the NFL rulebook says this. Whenever a team presents an apparent punting formation, defensive pass interference is not to be called for action on the end man of the line of scrimmage. You can do anything you want to if he lines up on the end, which is exactly what the receiver did. So despite the animated sideline entreaties of Sebastian Janikowski, there was no flag to the Raiders' favor. And this article, what the guy ends up saying is, maybe they should have read the rule book. You see, sometimes the rule book is important. Sometimes there are some things that we learn from the rule book that are helpful to us. And the Bible gives us principles to live by, but it also gives us great snapshots of the, of the life that God desires for us. Beyond just the rules and the principles and the way that we're supposed to live, it gives us a picture it gives us a word picture, but it's still a picture, and a picture's worth a thousand words. And one of the clear snapshots we're given us uh, in the Bible is of servant leaders. We just looked at Jesus and, and, and what he did on the night he was betrayed. In John 13, there's a verse, and I love this verse, John 13, 16. Jesus comes. It's the night that he, they're going to have the last supper, and he takes off his outer clothes, and he wraps a towel around him, and he begins to wash feet. And some of the disciples, Peter especially, says, no, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And the Lord says, I, you need me to wash my feet. You don't understand. And when he gets done, this is what Jesus said says, I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And the Lord is saying, listen, I'm the master. I'm the one that God has sent here. And if I am willing to serve, are you willing to serve? It was a great illustration. It was a great picture for them. And there's no way that Peter ever forgot that. Anytime Peter went to someone's house and they had a servant out there to wash his feet, what do you think Peter thought of? He thought of Jesus. He thought of that incident. He thought of the last room and the last supper in that room where that happened. Why did Jesus demonstrate how to serve? Because when we see the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of the universe, the Savior that we serve, when we see Him serving us, we learn to serve. That picture motivates us. It gives us the passion to serve there's a snapshot of service in Psalm 123. I want to show it to you. Uh, We need a a snapshot of how God works. Just as Jesus gave that illustration to the disciples, we need to see it. And I think you can see it in Psalm 123. It's a little fuzzy, so let me help clear up the image a little bit. Psalm 123, the first two verses, it says, I lift up my eyes to you, to you whose throne is in heaven. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. Now, if he'd stopped right there, that would have been, yeah, the servant looking to the master, the the maid looking to her master, the person that was underneath, the one who was lower, looking up to the one who was in authority. But look at the last line, because this is how God serves us. So our eyes look to the Lord, our God, till he shows us his mercy. God served us with mercy. God served us with this grace that he gave us. How does God work? Two things here. Number one, God is ultimately sovereign. We need to start there. We gloss over that. We, We overlook that. What does it say? I lift up my eyes. Those words are very familiar. You ever heard somebody say, I look up to you? do they mean that's because you're taller? Not usually. It's not a physical thing, is it? When you say, I look up to someone, now some of you are saying, well, I'm pretty tall. People have said that to me a lot. But that's not what they really mean. When you say, I look up to someone, it's usually, that means you respect them. That means you admire them. That means you, there's something about them that you want to emulate. That's absolutely what we're saying here. God is superior to us. We want to emulate him. We want to live like him. We want to be like him. We want his character to be our character. We want what God has to be in our life. I lift up my eyes. I look up to you, God. God is superior to us in intellect, in his ability to think, his ability to reason. He's he's superior to us in his power. The things that God can do, can you hold back the Red Sea so people can walk through it? Can you cause the sun, to, the, the shadows to go backward? It says in the Old Testament that that happened. Can, can you cause hailstones to, to fall and destroy a city? Can, can you uh, do all these other things? Can you cause Peter to walk on water even for a few steps? Can you raise somebody from the dead? God says, I am superior to you in power. God is superior to us in wisdom, in every imaginable quality, in character, in essence. To begin to understand how God works, we have to start with who God is. God is incredible. Uh, Psalm 22, 3, and 4, all the way through the Psalms, you see this. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One, it says. You are the praise of Israel. In you, our fathers put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. They trusted and you delivered. They trusted and you did what, they, what what you said you would do for them. When they trusted you, look at what God did. All of the Old Testament is this picture of what God did for an undeserving people. God did it for Israel because they were always right. God did it for Israel because they never messed up, right? Is that right? They wandered in the desert for 40 years because they couldn't even get it right after 10 unbelievable plagues. And after 40 years of wandering in the desert, God fed them. God made sure their shoes never wore out. God gave them the water that they needed. And when they got to to the land of Israel, even after 40 years, what did they do? They turned their back on him time after time after time. The Lord says, listen, you need to start. If you want to see how I work, you need to understand that I am sovereign. Sovereign, and from the, the Webster's Dictionary, says supreme in power and authority, needing no external control. In fact, I'd go a step further not needing no external control, but no, no one can control him. God is supreme in power and authority, God is in control. He's perfect, He's holy. He's just and loving. He, that means he's going to have justice and also show love at the same time. We can't even fathom how that works. He can be trusted. He delivers. We rebel at the, the concept of being a slave. We rebel at this concept saying, well, I, I was watching your hand as the eyes of a slave looks to the hand of the master. We rebel against that. We don't want to be a slave. Folks, you are a slave. You're a slave to so many things, you don't even realize you're a slave to it. You're a slave to TV because the commercials have told you what to eat and what to wear and where to go and what to drive. Is that not true? You don't believe it. Finish this. You deserve a... I rest my case. So get out and get away too. You guys all know it. And you say, well, I don't watch TV that much. No, but you knew the commercial. And the way we live is so much dominated by our society and what we're we're, we're forced into this mold. And the Lord says, don't you understand you are a slave? And when we rebel against this, we say, but the New Testament teaches us to have confidence. It it tells us that we have confidence in Christ. Remember Luke 11.9, it it says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and the doors will be opened unto you. But even that's balanced with 1 John 5.14, we're to approach it and ask according to His will, for that's when He hears us, is what that verse says. Hebrews 10.19 says, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. But it's easy for that confidence to turn into self-sufficiency. It's easy for that confidence to turn into arrogance. Have you ever known an arrogant Christian? Have you ever known one that, that walks in and they're just kind of, they're full of themselves and they're pompous and they're a they're bag of air when they come in. And they, they swagger and they, they, they say, I've been saved by the blood. Yes, you have. But was it something that you did? It, was it something that, that you earned? It, was it something that you deserve? Is it some, No, it's mercy. It's mercy. We begin to act like we don't need God, like we know more than God. Eugene Peterson, uh, in his book on the Psalms, says this, Too often we think of religion as a far-off, mysteriously-run bureaucracy. Do you ever think of religion as a bureaucracy? Listen to which we apply for assistance when we feel the need we go to the local branch office and we direct the clerk sometimes called a pastor to fill out our order for God pastor this is what i want god to do then we go home and wait for god to be to be delivered to us according to the specifications we've set down that's not the way it works And if we thought about it for two consecutive minutes, we would not want it to work that way. If God is God at all, He must know more about our needs than we do. If God is sovereign, does He know your needs? Does He know what you need? Absolutely. If God has got it all, He must be more in touch with the reality of our thoughts, our, our, our emotions, our bodies than we are. Do you think God knows what's going on in your body? Do you think He know, knows what's going on in your emotions? Do you think that He knows if you're out of work? Do you think that He knows if you're struggling in some aspect of your life? Of course He does. If God has got it all, He must have a more comprehensive grasp of the interrelations in our families and communities and nations than we do. Listen to how he ends up. We are not presented with a functional God who will, who will help us out of jams. We're not presented with a God as an entertainment God who will lighten tedious hours. We are presented with the God of Exodus and Easter, the resurrection, the God of Sinai, Sinai and Calvary. If we want to understand God, we must do it on His terms. If we want to see God the way He really is, we must look to the place of authority, to Scripture and to Jesus Christ. And the Lord says, don't you get it? God is sovereign. Here's number two, how God works. God is in control. Number two, God wants to be intimately involved. Even though He is so far above us and so beyond what we can imagine, He wants to be intimately involved. It's easy to believe that God's distant. distant. He's removed from us. But look what He says in verse 2. He says, watch my hands. As a servant, as a slave looks at the hands, watch my hands. Just the opposite of what we think. He wants us to, to understand. And it seems strange to us. Why? Because we live all of our life seeing if somebody's trying to hide what they're doing. A magician. What does a magician do? Don't you love all the big dramatic things as they're pulling scarves and doing why are they always doing that these big things with their hands because they're trying to pull your attention away from what the other hand is doing they're trying to trick you and the lord says watch my hands i understand this more than a lot of people we have a new little dog called bo we got him in august this this little dog is he's half poodle and half what shih tzu okay a poodle and a shih tzu. I don't know what that is, don't even, don't, don't, don't even go there. But this little dog watches my hands. If I get any shoes out that even might remotely look like athletic shoes, if I pull on anything that resembles jeans, he is all over me. He's excited. Are we going to go for a walk? Are we going to go for a walk? Or can we walk? Can we walk right now? And if I brush against his leash, even if I'm just walking through the laundry room and brush his leash, leash that hangs there, he's there in a second. He can be asleep back on the bed with his head on my pillow, and I can be out watching football and open a bag of chips as quietly as anyone, and I look down and the dog is drooling on my foot. He's watching my hands constantly to the point that it's just kind of creepy every now and then. Seven times in Ezra, the book of Ezra, seven times in the first sixth chapter, Ezra says, and I saw the hand of God. I saw God's hand. As Ezra is wanting to rebuild the temple, I saw God's hand. I saw God's hand. What's he doing? What is God doing in our midst? In Acts chapter 3, right after the day of Pentecost, Jesus has been resurrected. He's been taken back. In Acts chapter three, There's this story that Peter and John come, there's a, a lame person sitting where, in the gate of the temple, they're coming up the steps to the temple, the south, the south steps is where I believe that he would have been, they're coming up the south steps where Jesus taught so many times, and Peter and John are there, and this lame man is there. And look at what it says, when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money, Peter looked straight at him as did John, then Peter said, look, look at us, watch my hands. Look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. When's the last time you looked at God's hands expecting to get something from him? He expected to get silver, and Peter goes on and says, listen, I don't have the silver you're looking for. I don't have the money that you think you need. What I have for you is more than that. And And he said, in the name of Jesus Christ, get up, walk, go home. And the man who thought that he needed a coin really needed a healing. The man who thought that he needed this little thing was given this banquet. He was begging for a cracker. And the Lord said, Here's the turkey and the roast beef and the ham and the hamburgers and everything else. The man glanced at them. He wanted his full attention. Now, let me ask you this question Who or what ultimately wins our focus? Our circumstances? Our pain, our trials, our demands, our pressures, or, or just Christ? When's the last time you looked at His hand expecting Him to do? How does God work? God is ultimately sovereign and wants to be intimately involved. I, I love... Uh, Ephesians 1, 17 and 18, Paul is writing to this church. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The eyes of your heart to be enlightened. We need a snapshot of how, God's, how God works. Number, number two, or letter B, we need a snapshot of how God cares. Go back to Psalm 123. Not only does God want to work intimately in your life, not only does he want his hand to be a part of your life, this is what, how he cares. Psalm 123, verses three and four. Have mercy on us, O Lord. Have mercy on us. For we have endured much contempt. You ever been held in contempt? Have you ever had someone heap contempt on you because you're a Christian, because of your faith? They, they laugh at you. They ridicule you. They, they say, oh, you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? Are you kidding me? You're, please tell me you're joking. You're not one of these guys who goes to church and reads the Bible. It's contempt. Look at verse 4. We have endured much ridicule from the proud, much contempt from the arrogant. You say, well, where in the world does that show us that God cares? Well, what is he asking for? He's asking for mercy. Here's the two places, here's the two ways that God shows us that he cares. He shows us he cares by giving us help. Come find help. Number one, come find help when you've been held in contempt, when people are ridiculing you, when you're in trouble. The psalmist who writes this as he's walking up to the the temple, maybe along the way he sees people who see him going to the temple, and they're shaking their head like, there he goes again, three times a year like clockwork. He comes by, and he's dragging this lamb, and he's going to offer this lamb. What does he know? This isn't helping him. It's not doing him any good. Yeah, they go off to church every Sunday morning, and look at them. They're still struggling in their work. Look at them. They're they're going off to church, and they're still struggling in their relationships. Look at them. It's not helping them, and they're, they're holding us in contempt he's in trouble and time after time we have snapshots in the bible nehemiah 2 nehemiah is back building the wall and he calls all the people together he says the king has provided me all of this last week we looked at some of that the king has provided all of the, the supplies we need all the money we need we need to be the manpower let's get busy what was it saying? Nehemiah 2.19, when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, official, and Geshem the Arab, if you're looking for names, these are not three names, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, don't use those. When they, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. Folks, listen to me. In our society for the last couple of hundred years, if you were a Christian, there was some modicum of honor. There was some, there was some, uh, Ability to stand tr- strong and to say that we're Christians and to be proud. Today in our society, when you stand strong and say that you're a Christian, people will mock you. When you go to school, students, you will, be, you, you will have students say to you, oh, you're not one of those Christians, are you? When you stand strong in the workplace, you might be lo- overlooked for a promotion. There, is, there are going to be some things that we're going to pay for, and it's going to get worse before the Lord comes back. When you're in trouble, understand that God understands. The, the word that's contempt is the same word from the Hebrew root word for disrespect. We really don't think that's all that big of a problem. You Remember the movie Fireproof? We went as a church and saw it. We've showed it uh, since then. The young man is a, a fireman, and he, he, has a, he has a wife and a relationship that's, that's crumbling, and, and, they're, and they're going their separate ways, and, and they're in trouble. And what does the wife say to him? One day she comes in, and as as he comes in, she looks over his shoulder. He he blanks out the, the computer screen. He turns it off quickly because he's looking at pornography, something he knows he should not see. And you remember what she says? Do you love me more than that? Do you love me more than that? And you remember the fireman, eventually when he gets to the point in his life where he realizes that his, his pornography is a problem, he takes a computer outside and he uses a bat or a, or, a, or a golf club or something and he beats it up. The neighbor keeps coming out and seeing him beating up stuff by the trash can. And you remember what the wife sees the next time she comes in? He's gone and gotten a beautiful bouquet of roses and he puts a note there and says, I love you more than anything. The Lord says... There's a disrespect. It can come a lot of different ways. Husbands can be continually belittled by their wives, never respected. Children can have disrespect heaped on them by words, by a tone of voice, by looking, by not looking, a manner, an expression. Ephesians 5.33 says, wives, respect your husband. But listen, it's toxic when it's heaped on children, that disrespect that, 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 that is laid on them. Where do we get help? I love Romans 12.1, and this is what it says in the message. Listen, this is what it says. Here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Remember the song we just sang? I bring an offering to you. Place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. Paul is begging us, and he's saying, listen, take your everyday ordinary life, those times when you have disrespect heaped on you, come to me and find help. God has the answer that no one else has. Did you get that? God has the answer for your situation, whether it's your marriage, whether it's your job, whether it's your finances, whether it's whatever it is, God has the answer. Come to him for help. Number two, come and find Grace. Come find grace. Twice the psalmist calls for mercy. Don't, don't give me what I deserve. That's what mercy is. We've played the game before where you take somebody's fingers and you, you, you cry mercy because you push so much pressure on them and, and you get them to their knees and you make them say mercy. Please don't do that anymore. Don't give me what I deserve. I'm, I'm not strong enough to stand up to you. Don't give me what I deserve. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. But the Old Testament concept of mercy is actually broader than it is in the New Testament, and it's it actually includes being given not only what we don't do, what we, what, don't what give us what we deserve, but it's also give us what we can't earn. It's the concept of grace. It's the essence of the New Testament concept of grace. It's not just don't give me the punishment that I really deserve to, to spend eternity separated with God. But it's also on the other side, Lord, I know I could never earn this, but give me, give me something that I, that I could never earn. Give me grace. Hebrews 4.16 puts it all together. Look at this. It says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. That's, that's the throne of God. The throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Erdman's commentary on this passage says, it's a repeated supplication, have mercy on us, could literally be rendered, grace us. Grace us. That is to say, transform us into your treasure. What do we learn about grace from learning to serve? What do we learn about that? If if you learn to serve, what does it teach you about grace? I thought long and hard on this. I, I, I was trying to come up with a a great realization of this. And I thought back to one of my heroes. In 1955, a man by the name of Jim Elliott and four others, uh, Nate Saint and Roger Udarian and, and two others. They were down in outside of Quito, Ecuador. They were trying to win a tribe of Indians called, that they called the Aucas, the Aca Indians. And as they were trying to do that, Jim Elliott, who had been a Wheaton grad this man who loved the Lord, he felt sure that God had called them to, to, to do something very daring, and the five of them separated from their families, and they went to the Aka Indians, and, and they began to reach out. They learned some of the language, the few words they could learn, and they took gifts and presents, and for several days, it looked like they were going to be successful. But about this time of year, in Jan, just late January, I believe it was, They no longer could get in radio contact. They eventually went and found them, and all five of them had been murdered. They'd been speared by the Alka Indians, cannibals. Jim Elliot wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He lost his wife, he lost his daughter, he lost his family, he lost his friends. He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep To gain that which he cannot lose. And as I thought about that illustration, that's not where the grace comes in. Nate Saint's sister, Rachel Saint, was also a missionary, and she decided to change fields, and she came to the area where uh, Nate Saint had been, and she learned the language, and she befriended one of the women from the tribe, and she went in and began to translate the language. And she realized that she needed someone to help her, and Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth Elliott, decided to go with her. Elizabeth Elliot went to the people who killed her husband, and Rachel Saint went to the people who killed her brother, and they told him about Jesus Christ. And the big breakthrough, according to Rachel Saint, the biggest breakthrough is one night when one of the, the ladies there that they had befriended, they had tried to work with, became deathly sick, and they didn't know why, and she didn't know why, and the witch doctor came and left, and nothing was helping them, and they they didn't have medicine, they didn't have anything else, and Elizabeth Elliot and, and Rachel Saint began to just lay their hands on this woman and pray, Lord, we don't know how to serve her. And it came upon them that what they needed to do was get her fever down, and so they began to, to mop her with the water. It wasn't even that cool, but it was the coolest that they had. And they began to get the fever down any way they could. And for three days, they served this woman round the clock. Neither one of them slept for 72 hours as they ministered to this woman, praying for her, bathing her, trying desperately to help her get through this time. And she lived. She was the first one to accept Jesus Christ. And she told others. And one day she came back to Rachel and she was in tears, flooding her face. And she said, I have to tell you something horrible. And she said, "What?" She said, I was the one who led the men that killed your husband and your brother. I was the guide. I knew where they were. I was the one who told them. And Elizabeth said, but you're my sister in Christ. And God loves you and so do I. And that's grace. And that's something that only God can do. To change our hearts, to love the person that we should hate the most. To change our hearts so we serve the person that is the least likely for us to serve. And as we do that, we're entering into the temple, into the presence of God. And we're saying, Lord, have mercy. Lord, grace us. And through us, grace others, and His kingdom is built more each day as we do that. Would you pray with us? Thank you, Father. Thank you for an amazing story of love and forgiveness and grace. Thank you, Father, that in those times when we couldn't possibly do what you've called us to do, you can do through us and in us those things that are impossible And we come to you today because we are not in control of our life. Our lives are spinning out of control many times. And even when we think we have it under control, Father, we're just fooling ourselves. We want you to be intimately involved. We want you to, to be woven through everything that we do, all of our lives. We need you, Father. We need your help. We need your compassion, your love, your care. Grace us, Father grace us. Father, if there's one person here today who's never experienced the love of the cross, the grace of the cross, the forgiveness of the cross, the transformation of new life in you, may they come to know you even today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.